podcast. On today's episode, you will hear part one of a series of teachings on how I came to an affirming view of same-sex relationships. This lesson focuses on my view of the Bible and how that has changed over the course of multiple decades. As always, I hope you are moved, and thanks for listening. I, I mentioned earlier I, I wanted us to sing the song Heaven's Road, uh, partially because that's a, a Bible class favorite of mine from like when I was six, but also because the song is, is proclaiming that we're on a journey. And um, a lot of times throughout Christian history, uh, people have described the Christian faith and what's going on in the world as a pilgrimage. We have a certain image of what pilgrims are, and that typically has to do with people in these funny little black hats with like a belt buckle on them, uh, and uh, they eat Thanksgiving every day, and um, that kind of our image of what a pilgrim is. But the idea that we're on a pilgrimage, we're on a journey, that life is is going somewhere. And that we are a part of that. We are going somewhere, both as individuals, as a group, but even as a world. Uh, that there is a journey we are being a part of. And so, tonight, I want to begin sharing uh, a little bit, a little pieces of my journey. And I want to share those in light of some very specific things. So, what you're going to hear me talk a lot about is... The Bible, God, uh, and people, and how those three things have interconnected on my journey. And this is all going somewhere. We're going to be talking about, at, at certain points in this, how I've come to certain positions that I hold, certain thoughts that I have uh, on particular issues. But I'm more interested in the journey, and here's why. I wish I could say that we are changed because of, uh, you know, we heard a really amazing sermon, or we went to a great Bible class, or we read the perfect book, and that totally changed us about something or changed our lives. But for most of us, that's just not how it goes most of the time. The reason we think and believe and do the things we do today is because of the journey that we've been on and how it's brought us to this place. And that journey has thousands of turns that we can't possibly name. Um, And so I don't assume by saying what I'm going to say over the next few weeks that it's going to exactly lay out even my journey. It's just impossible. I can't name everything that happened and how it went. I don't even remember it. Uh, The other day, Aaron and I were talking about this. We were talking about how if you sat down and really started thinking about meals you have eaten, specific meals, you could probably name several, maybe quite a few uh, specific meals you've eaten. But the vast majority of meals you have eaten have been forgotten. But you are alive and here today because of all those meals. And so uh, I'm going to highlight some meals on my journey uh, and use those to try to talk about something bigger. But we're, we're not going to hit everything. 
But I hope what will happen is that as we talk about this, certain parts of my journey and perhaps your journey will connect. And we can say, oh, yes, maybe that's a a way to think about things that uh, could help both of us. So I I want to begin uh, this uh, by by saying, as we talk, uh, if you have a question, I want to answer it. But I want to encourage us to hold off on like, rebuttals or that sort of thing. Um, if you have a question, it's like, oh, I don't think I understand what that is. Or could you explain that a different way where I could catch it? That's what we want to do. We're going to have time, especially at the end of this series of lessons, we're going to put a big time aside for lots of discussion and that sort of thing. But I want to try to get through those things. But if you have a clarifying question, I really do want to answer it because I don't want you sitting there going, I, I don't know what we're talking about now because that just made no sense. Um, so let's begin uh, where my journey with this uh, begins in many ways. Uh, when I was 13 years old, uh, I walked down to the front of a church and got baptized on a Wednesday night. And after that evening, I went home and decided that night, uh, as probably as we were driving home, I decided, you know what? I need to read the Bible. I had read bits and pieces of the Bible, and I'd been going to Bible class since before I could remember, but I decided that night on the way home, I was going to read the Bible all the way through, from beginning to end. And so I did, Um, sort of. I went home, and that night I began reading, and you start in Genesis 1, and it's quite lovely. There's creation, and it's beautiful, and there's Adam and Eve, and uh, you know, a 13-year boy finds it interesting. They're naked, and it's okay, and I thought that's pretty cool, and um, you start going, but very quickly, things got rough. Now, a lot of people, when they talk about reading through the Bible, they mention like, oh, you get to like Leviticus, and it just gets really hard. I mean, it just feels like a mental beating to keep reading. Some of this seems boring or so ancient. That's not what I'm talking about. I got to Genesis chapter 6. And realized this doesn't say what I thought it said. I think I got to day two of reading through the Bible and realized, wait a minute. This is not like the flannel graph. Because in Genesis chapter 6, you have the beginning of the story that we typically call Noah and the flood. And I've been reading this story and I realized there's a whole lot of things going on here that are not nice. Uh, People are not nice. And as I was reading it, it seemed like God wasn't very nice. And then it said something that I promise you, I didn't, as many times I'd heard Noah, and if you go to Bible class at the church where I grew up uh, from, say, uh, three years old through 13, you've heard the story of Noah like 425 times, right? I mean, that's one of the biggies. You got to have Daniel, Noah, Jonah. Right, we, we like whales and lions and floods. And so, I started reading, and in the story it said this. It said that God was regretted that He had made people. And I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know who to ask. And so I did what I think kind of at that time in my life I was learning to do with many things, many thoughts, questions, emotions, which was bury it. 
And so I continued to read through the Bible and I continued to have questions, but I didn't know where to go with them. And so I kept pushing them inside. Every once in a while, maybe in Bible class at church, I might kind of lob half of one out to see what the reception would be. And typically the reception was, what are we, what are we thinking about here? Okay, I could tell like, oh, this is not, this is not the time or place uh, to talk about whether God knows the future or not. Um, so I'll just keep that to myself. Well, then um, I made a decision when I was 17. Uh, I wanted to be a lawyer and then a politician. I was going to go to A&M and study law and political science. I mean, study political science and pre-law and then go become a lawyer because I like the TV show L.A. Law mostly. Um, I thought I could date Susan Day. Um, only a few people even know who that is. <laughs> Dating myself. But I decided to become a minister. And, after, and I decided to come to ACU. And I didn't realize this, but this was going to be a huge turn in my journey because my second year of ACU, I took my first ever upper level Bible course. It was the book of Luke with Dr. Tony Ash. Dr. Ash died just a few months ago. And I had never been to anything like this. He wanted us basically to memorize the book of Luke. That's what it felt like. Uh, we, we were poring over every line in the book. And, uh, for instance, we had, a, we had a, uh, uh, a test one time. And he asked us on the test, he said, uh, in Luke chapter, I can't remember the chapter nine, now, I'm going to say chapter 9, I can't remember exactly the chapter. He said, in Luke chapter 9, there are five stories. What do each of these stories tell us about faith? Well, I, I, man, I'd been studying like crazy. I was in the, so, oh man, I know that, like this story tells us, you know, how faith is like a mustard seed and it grows. And, and there was one of them. I knew all five stories. Like I basically memorized the chapter. I knew all five stories. But there was one story that I couldn't figure out what it had to do with faith. And so, as you do when you're 19, you go, well, I mean, i got to put something. So, oh, I think it means that faith is really important. And, you know, you just make something up because you don't know what it means. I got the test back. I'd missed it. I got it wrong. I got that one wrong. And I looked at my neighbor's test. So would he. And we started talking, and everybody had missed this question. So it seemed like no problem. So we started reading it, and Dr. Ash is going to a test. He said, I noticed that many people missed this question. There are five stories. And I asked, what do each of them tell us about faith? And so he began going through them. This one tells us this. This one tells us this. Oh, I got that. I got that. And then there's the one. He said, and this one seems to be the one that everyone missed. What does this story tell us about faith? This story tells us nothing about faith. And that is the answer. And I was like, what is this? What is happening here? This does not seem like Jesus. Um, yeah, this, this was rough. But in the class, there was a day. And I distinctly remember it. We were studying, and we were in Luke chapter 6, and we read this passage. Now, this is going to sound familiar, but most of us, when we read this, we actually hear it from Matthew, which says it slightly differently. Uh, it says this in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. 
Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And we were going over this, and I was a 19-year-old idealistic kid who was going into ministry, and I realized, I don't think I've ever heard this. And I raised my hand. And Dr. Ash said, yes. And I said, wait a minute. Are we actually supposed to do this? And you know how, if some of you know, you know how 19-year-old college kids are. They're, they will push things. And he said, well, what do you think? You know, these are Jesus' words. I said, well, for instance, and I went to this line, give to everyone who asks of you. I said, so are we just, if someone asks me for something, I'm just supposed to give it to them? He says, well, this, I distinctly remember Dr. Ash saying this. I think that's what it says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but... It, This stuff, are we supposed to, I don't know anybody who does this, yet this is Jesus saying, do this. And he wanted to move on, I could tell, but I didn't want us to move on. Because I was realizing something. And here's what I was realizing. In that moment, in Dr. Ash's class, and I'm sure it had been many moments to help give them, I was realizing this. I read the Bible a certain way that pretty much ignores everything in this passage, but finds other things to be extremely important, and we should do those. For instance, if it had said in that passage, you got to be baptized, I'd say, well, you got to do that. I'm talking about me as a 19-year-old. you got to do that. But this, Jesus was saying, if someone asks you for 10 bucks, you got to give it to them. And that didn't make sense to me. And it began pushing something inside of me. And the thing it began pushing inside of me was this. Not only did I not know the Bible well, I began to realize, I don't think I know Jesus or God very well either. These words don't make sense to me. That same year, I had a friend. Her name was Valerie. And Valerie's dad was a professor at ACU. He taught in the Bible department, although none of us had him because he was too hard. And Valerie's dad, Dr. Osborne, was going to be speaking at lectureship that year. And I'd never been to lectureship, so I thought I should go. And here, Valerie's dad, who I met one time, real nice, when he had a bunch of us over at their house for dinner. And so I went. And Dr. Osborne was speaking, and so many people wanted to hear his talk that they moved it from a classroom into a giant auditorium. And he spoke. And he spoke about 1 Corinthians and what it has to say about women. And he came to some very different conclusions than I had ever heard. As a matter of fact, some of the things he said were so different than things I heard, people got up yelled at him, and left the room. I had never seen anything like this. 
And yet he kept going very calmly and gently, uh, saying things that for me at the time seemed impossible, radical. Now they seem tame. But again, I began to realize, wait a minute. There are people who read this and think about these things very differently than I do. And who know Jesus and God and the Bible in a very different way than I do. And what I began, what I believe was happening was God was at work breaking me out of kind of my myopic view, seeing things just the way I had always seen them. And then the big two things happened. The first was, I met this really good-looking woman who um, tricked me into marrying her. And... (laughs) I'm pretty sure I was tricked. But Melody had begun... Uh, when she was in high school, a ministry that was reaching out to uh, kids, uh, mostly minorities and mostly people living in pretty severe poverty. And she had continued that ministry through college and it had grown a lot. And uh, she had, she was, when we started dating, she was on the verge of graduating from college. And uh, the church that she, where she grew up decided to hire her to keep running that ministry and in fact very soon decided that shouldn't just be a ministry there are so many people coming there are so many people involved it should be a church and we're going to have a church plant and so as we're dating this is all happening it's it's beginning and so um i applied to be the minister at that church and was turned down um, even though I thought I had the inside game, I didn't. Um, Melody didn't turn me down. Uh, higher ups did. But January came, and we were supposed to have two things. We were supposed to have a building, and we were supposed to have a minister. And we didn't have a building or a minister. So that first Sunday, we met at Cobb Park Recreation Center, which is over by, on, not very far from here. Uh, a building owned by the city. There were not very many of us there. And someone was supposed to preach because that's what you do at church. So I preached. Uh, and about 10 months later was hired to do that. Um, but very quickly, as we were doing that ministry and planting that church, I realized something deep and profound in me. And that was this. The, the theology I had, the knowledge I had, the way I'd been taught to preach, all these things, none of it mattered. It didn't work. There were all of these very poor people and the things I'd been taught didn't help. It didn't fix things. It didn't change them. It didn't do anything. It didn't seem like And so I was kind of befuddled. We were trying. I think we were being very loving. I think we were 
um, uh, trying to be like Jesus in many ways. But inside me, I didn't know what to do. Even week to week, it'd be time to preach. I was like, well, I can't say that. No one will understand it. Can't say that because it doesn't do it. I don't know what to do. What do you do when your theology, when the way you've been taught to read the Bible doesn't work for the very people you're trying to help fall in love with God? So right at that time, I did something really stupid. I went up to ACU and got convinced by a professor there that I should go to grad school. So I came home and told Melody, I'm, I'm taking a preaching class. I think I could use this preaching class. She said, you're not doing the MDiv, are you? And I said, you remember this? And I said, no, no, because that's stupid. Spend all that time and money and to get that degree, that's, that's ludicrous. I wouldn't do an MDiv, and Masters of Divinity. I wouldn't do that. Of course, the next semester I did. Uh, but I'm, I changed my mind really fast. But I... I started going to these classes, and if I thought my mind had been blown by somebody like Dr. Ash as an undergrad, I had no idea what was coming for me. I ran into something called open theism. I'm not going to try to explain it all, but a very different view of what, of how God works in the world. That perhaps God doesn't know the future, and perhaps God is open to all sorts of possibilities, and Perhaps we have much more involvement in the ways of God than we think. I was taking a class and I ran into something called liberation theology. A bunch of South American priests who had the same realization that I had had that the way we do theology and the way we talk about the Bible doesn't work in places where people are dying by the thousands from dysentery and stuff. And so there's got to be a different way to think about theology. And they called it theology from the oppressed or from the bottom. And I read a work by a guy named Gustavo Gutierrez who basically said if theology is not coming from the poor, then it's not good theology. And I, I was blown away. I didn't know what to do with all this. And then I did a massive research project. And the research project was a look at black churches of Christ during the civil rights movement. And I did all this research and took months. And part of that research is I went to Atlanta for a conference. But the main reason I went there was to try to talk to all of these. They were now older because they had been ministers in the 60s. All these older black ministers. And I went there and I interviewed these guys and was blown away by what they were saying. But I was most blown away by a guy named Floyd. Uh, Floyd had been a teenager when the civil rights era began. And he was a preaching prodigy. Um, He traveled around, even at 17 or 18, with this older minister. There was two or three of them. They traveled around with him and preached at gospel meetings all the time. And Floyd was telling me all about this and telling me about his life. And then he told me a story. And this was the story. He said that they were traveling through this area. He was from Tennessee, but they were traveling through Texas. And they came to Abilene and they were doing a big thing here in Abilene, lots of people came and uh, he made the journey over to ACU. And 
attempted to apply. But at that time, African Americans were not allowed an ACU. And so um, he didn't get belligerent or anything, but eventually ended up in the office of the president sitting across from him. And this is what he said to the president. He said, just please tell me why God thinks I'm good enough to preach the gospel, but you don't think I'm good enough to go to school here. And I began weeping, just weeping, hearing the story. And he went on to all about his life. And he got to the end and I looked at Floyd and I said, I am so sorry for what's happened to you. I, I just can't tell you how sorry I am. And he said, oh, it's okay. You know, I've grown. I said, no, no, I just, I just want you to know. I, I wish I could say that had I been back there, I'd have treated you different. But I can't say for sure that I would. And he said, hey, you weren't there. Um, let's go with the hope that you would have, which I thought was very kind. And then he said this. He said, but something is coming in your life where you will get the chance to do what some people didn't do for me. It's coming. Because it comes to all of us. I came back home from this trip just overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by these, these people and their struggles. But also realizing that in the 1950s, when ACU wouldn't let Floyd into school, they were reading the same Bible I read. Following the same God I follow. Believing in the same Jesus I believe in. And yet, something was wrong. It was a mess. And so, all of these things, and by the way, as I mentioned earlier, this is a journey. So these are snippets, but these are snapshots. But all of these things over time pile up in you. And what they do is they shape you and mold you and cause you to question and cause you to rethink. And I got to a place where I thought, well, what we need is better interpretation. Right? So, going back, Dr. Osborne's talking about women that day at ACU. And I started thinking, well, what we need is better interpretation. In other words, if we can just figure out the right way to interpret things, that'll fix the problem, right? So if we interpret it wrong about women, but now we're interpreting it right, that'll fix it. And everybody will go, yay, great interpretation. We'll run with that. And I really thought, if I can just figure out this book and get it right, it'll fix stuff. It would have fixed stuff for, for Floyd. Back then, the problem was they were just not interpreting correctly. I came to realize after not very much time that that would not work. There are tens of thousands of different denominations because who's got the right interpretation? And there are passages throughout the Bible that, first of all, it's almost impossible to figure out even what they mean. But I can make a legitimate case. I could stand right here right now before you and make a really legitimate case from the Bible 
for women sitting down and shutting up in church. And I can make a really good case from the Bible that women should be allowed to do everything in church. I can give you both interpretations and maybe kind of convince you on both. And I realized that the way I was approaching the whole thing wasn't working. And so I have, over the course of that's, I just gave you from 13 to 45, so 32 years, come to a different place about how I view the Bible and how I view how God works in our world. I am not going to proclaim to you that that is right and perfect and exactly how it is because that seems stupid. I'm sure throughout history, people who have made giant errors with how they've treated people and what the church has done and how we've interpreted the Bible thought they were doing it right. And so I think I... It requires humility, if nothing else. But I want to tell you tonight, I want to kind of wrap up our little bit of journeying tonight by talking to you a little bit about where I am as far as looking at the Bible. Uh, In a couple weeks, we'll get into some specific passages that relate to some of the topics we want to talk about. But I'm talking about a general thing. And so I want to start, I want to do this in two ways. I want to start with some assumptions that I've had about the Bible that I have given up. The first assumption I gave up a while back is just do what it says. Just do what it says. Um, If you go to Proverbs 26, it says... Do not answer a fool in their folly. Or you will, you know, basically it says you'll, you'll be a fool. <laughs> you know? The very next verse says, answer a fool in their folly. But otherwise, don't run around being a fool. Well, just do what it says. I can't. Uh, it says things that don't make sense to me. It says things that are sometimes contradictory. It says things that seem awful. And so no longer am I just doing what the Bible says. I've given up the assumption that the Bible is some infallible book that dropped out of heaven into our laps. The Bible is this weirdly put together library of books. Most of which, we don't know who wrote them. Most of which, it seems like quite a few people edited them over time. Most of which seem to say some things and kind of lob them out there and then you turn the page to a different book and you're like, wait a minute, this guy's not saying the same thing as that last person. I have given up the assumption that the goal of the Bible is to get you to follow the rules. I have given up the assumption that the Bible has all the answers if we'll just interpret it right enough. 
I've given up the assumption that the Bible is the answer to life. That, for many Christians, and maybe some of us in this room, might sound scary. I know it kind of did to me. But let me tell you, as I've laid those assumptions aside, it has opened me up to another place. So let me tell you, not what I no longer believe, but what I do believe. I believe that God, a being that I cannot possibly describe, speaks to us. And that sometimes uses the Bible to do that. I believe that following Jesus isn't simply a matter of black and white. Interpret this correctly, then do it. Interpret this correctly, then do it. That that's not what Jesus calls us to. But I do believe that the centerpiece of this book is Jesus the Christ. And that we interpret best when we allow Jesus to be the center. Something was said even in here a few months ago. I believe it was uh, uh, Kelly Gibson who said this. I'm sure it was because it sounded much smarter than anything I would say. But she said, we don't read the Bible flat. We don't pretend that it's all the same, that it all means the same, that it all carries the same weight. For instance, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He doesn't say, oh, wait a minute, that's a trick question. They're all the same. You've got to do them all. No, he says, no, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. If you do these things, it pretty much takes care of the rest. Jesus was reading the Bible differently than I do. Maybe I should change how I read it. The Bible, I believe, invites us into an ongoing conversation about what is the best way to live life in this world. Here and now. I believe that is the conversation that the person who wrote Deuteronomy was having. What is the best way to live life in this world? And I believe that's the conversation that the person that wrote Job was having. What is the best way to live life in this world? And I believe that's the conversation that Jesus is having with all those he goes around with. What is the best way to live? Is it chasing money? Jesus says no. The best way to live life is like... Have a party at your house where you invite people who never get invited to parties. Jesus says that's a great way to live life. I believe Paul is trying to figure out, what do I do with all this we have learned about how to live life and how do we figure out how to do that with other people? It is an ongoing conversation that has continued for thousands of years and we're invited into it. But not invited into it just to hear them These ancient people speak to us, but invited into it in the same way you invite anybody into a conversation. We have a say as well. And therefore, this is a book about wisdom. 
about what is better and then what is best. And ultimately, as crazy as this might have sounded to me, even a few years ago, I believe this book is about truth. But it comes with an understanding that truth is truth no matter where it is. So if I learn some truth, truth, big T, right? We all got big T truth, right? Right. Did I, did I eat the last of the cake this afternoon, my birthday cake or not? That's, a tr- that's true. I, I actually didn't. I'm saving it for later this evening. But if I tell you I didn't eat it, that's true. That's a fact. I didn't eat it. I hope no. You didn't eat it, did you? Okay. Uh, there's only one little piece left. I want it. Um, really bad. Uh, right now. But it's, that is a thing. A fact is something that's either true or not. The Bible is concerned not with whether something is true. It's concerned with truth. What matters in the world? And guess what? If you learn truth somewhere else and it really is truth, that's good too. Because all truth comes from the same place. And so, I have been on this journey where my view of the Bible has changed, but interestingly, my love of it has not. Because now I'm at a place where the Bible is inviting me, me, little old me, the one who couldn't get through Genesis 6, is inviting me into a conversation with God, with Paul, with Jesus, with Augustine, with Calvin, with St. Francis, with Mother Teresa, with all of you in this room. It is inviting me into a conversation and saying, Damon, How are you going to live in this world in a way that is best for you and everyone else? What does that look like? How does that work in the 21st century? And it shapes me and molds me and challenges me to do that. I want to end tonight with Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is a... uh, part of an ongoing story. In the early church, almost everyone was a Jew because Jesus was a Jew, the apostles were Jews, and everyone kind of thought, well, this is for Jewish people. That's what this Jesus thing is for. But then, Paul starts converting Gentiles. And Peter gets called to Cornelius' house and converts this Gentile and his family. And it's kind of like, what's happening here? Is God interested in Gentiles? They found this to be almost insane. God is interested in Gentiles too? That's so weird. Of course, now for us, it's like, that's totally normal. I think most of us in this room are probably Gentiles. But they they have to have a talk about it. So the church gathers in Jerusalem. People come from all over and they gather and they're going to talk about What are we going to do with these Gentiles who want to come in? And there are people there who are saying, hey, I don't think we should let them in. Other people saying, I think we should let them in, but they got to become Jews first. In other words, you got to be circumcised. You got to keep the Sabbath. You got to do certain, you got to be, to be a a Christian, you got to be a Jew. 
And Paul comes and starts telling his story. Hey, we've converted all these people. These things are happening. Seems like God is doing something. And Peter tells his story about Cornelius. Seems like God is doing something that doesn't fit how the story has gone to this point. And I want to read to you what they decide. Because they decide to write a letter to send out with some of the disciples so they can go around and tell these churches, hey, it's cool to let the Gentiles in and to let the Gentiles know, hey, here's what we expect of you. Here's what the letter says. To the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending you Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. Here's what they want them to know. Listen to this line. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. That's it. Now, there's two things I want you to notice here. I think they are fascinating. One is this. They said, what's our reason we're doing this? It seemed good to us. And the Holy Spirit. It seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. Think about what they are saying. Do you ever hear about anybody in church talk like this? Why are we doing this? Well, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit, so this is where we're going. Those early apostles and disciples in the early church, they had a trust in God that if they were trying to do the right thing and the good thing, and they were listening for God's voice, let's go. And so it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit, and they go off and do it. But notice the very next thing it says, because it tells them a few things to do, right? It doesn't leave, give a bunch of requirements. You don't have to be circumcised or anything like that. Here's what it says. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. That's the first thing it says. Here's what we know. If you read in Romans, Paul says, eh, that ain't a big deal. Eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Now, it's really easy to look at that and say, oh, wait, that's the Bible contradicting itself. I don't think so. I think what you see there is an ongoing conversation about what it means to follow God. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And at this moment... These disciples, throwing off thousands of years of history, can barely imagine Gentiles being in the church, but yet are willing to remove tons of requirements, right? Tons of Jewish requirements. You don't have to keep feast days. You don't have to keep Sabbath. You don't have to do all these things. We're asking you to do four things. And almost immediately, Paul's like, eh, you don't really got to. At least on the meat sacrifice idols. That seems crazy. Except this. I believe these apostles 
the writer of this book, which is probably Luke, that people like Paul and Barnabas and Silas truly believed we are in an ongoing conversation about what it means to follow Jesus in this world and we have to keep figuring it out. And what we think today might not be what we do 10 years from now or 20 years from now. And I'm going to tell you something even slightly crazier. They said, right here in Luke, right right here in Acts, don't eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Paul, in a couple of his books, is going to talk about that and say, eh, it's probably okay. If you feel okay about it, it's okay. Here's what's interesting. I'm pretty sure that Paul, what he wrote, was written before this. So Luke had no problem writing down, yeah, this is what we said back then, even though we already know people are doing it different. They weren't scared of hearing different voices, of seeing things from different perspectives. Just the other day, I was listening to a podcast and... uh, I'm 45 years old and had my mind blown again. It was a, a lady, and this is what she said. I thought it was so interesting. She's, she's an uh, African-American theologian, and she said, uh, um, I do black feminist theology. <laughs> that's the kind of theology I do. I'm a black person who's a feminist, and that's the theology I do. And she was talking with some people on the podcast. And then it became obvious as she talked. Wait a minute. I always thought I just do theology. Right? I just do theology. She's doing black feminist theology. I just do theology. That's not true. I am seeing things from my perspective. I have shared with you tonight a journey I have gone on with the Bible and how I use it and read it and think about it. But that is purely from my perspective. A white, middle class, southern, straight male living in the Bible Belt. I don't think I do it the same way those apostles did it. And I don't think I do it the same way Paul did it. They were Jews. And I probably don't do it the same way that lady does it. And maybe by hearing all the different voices, we come to a place where we begin to hear the voice behind it all. Maybe the goal was never to get to the perfect interpretation because if you get to the perfect interpretation, you don't have to listen for that voice anymore. I am interested in figuring out the Bible and knowing what it says, but I'm more interested in hearing the voice of God and the voice of people around me. I think that, in that combination, somewhere deep down inside, we begin to discover truth with a capital.